Hi, we're sisters, Amy and Nancy Harrington, the founders of the Passionistas Project podcast, where we give women a platform to tell their own unfiltered stories. On every episode, we discuss the unique ways in which each woman is following her passions, talk to her about how she defines success, and explore her path to breaking down the barriers that women too often face. Today, we're talking with Marissa Alma Nick, a choreographer and author who just released her first novel called Rebel in Venus. Although labeled a novel, the book is a semi-autobiographical, powerful and honest story of redemption, and an intimate portrait of friendship, the impact of trauma, the power of first love, and loss. Marissa illuminates queer experiences with an authentic perspective on emerging concerns, including trauma, mental health, sexual assault, abuse culture, and gaslighting. More than anything, it's a book about empowerment, self-realization, self-acceptance, and self-love. This episode contains conversations about situations that might trigger PTSD and emotional trauma or cause discomfort to some listeners. Please consider your own sensitivity before listening. And now, please welcome Marissa Elma Nick. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's so nice thank to meet both of you. Here. We're so excited to talk to you today. And uh, we are all about empowerment. So this book was right up our alley. We love it. Um, so we always like to start our interviews with the first question of what are you most passionate about? I think it, it, it's hand in hand with mental health awareness and ending rape culture. For me, they sort of, you know, ex I've experienced them synonymously. So, yeah, that in a, in a nutshell. Why are those topics that speak to you so much? I used to think I was like a passionate dancer. <laughs> um, so I think just coming to terms with um, my own life, my own experiences, the impact that they've had on me, um, exploring more to my own identity other than, let's say, being a dancer. Um, but it sort of was unavoidable, you know, my own experiences with my own mental health, as well as my loved ones and my own experience with, um, uh, sexual abuse, um, as well as other people. So many, so many, so many other people that I know, um, it sort of became my own way of surviving this. I had to, it was becoming too heavy. So I had to do something, you know, and the best way that my, my best, toolkit is in the arts. <laughs> so that's sort of how we how we landed here. So let's take a step back. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, where that maybe where that love of dancing and arts came from. And also your parents had very interesting backgrounds. So talk about that a little bit. Dance, I, um, my, my parents put me in a lot of, you know, things when I was little, um, like at, at three or four, um, to keep me busy, you know, out of trouble, um, I think. And so dance though was like instant at three. I, I was very intensely passionate, um, focused on what my body could do. Um, and I think looking back on that now, like I sort of touch on this in the book too, it was sort of my own, um, response to like some of my, my own childhood trauma of like finding sort of this, uh, opposition, this sense of control in my body where I didn't have it. Um, and so that was like dance and me became best friends at a very young age. Um, and my parents, you know, I'm, a, I'm an only child. Um, and uh, my mom is also an only child. Um, and they met without, you know, she was told she wouldn't even be able to have me because she has one ovary and, and endometriosis, which I've also inherited. Um, so they lived like five years without me. And then like, boom, a surprise. Um, and so it's like the three of us really have been sort of this like three musketeer thing. Um, I've also just experienced my whole life with them. They brought me wherever they went, what they did. So it was always very close. Um, the background that you mentioned, um, my dad is, um, they're both 72. My dad was born in Cuba. Um, his, his parents went from Poland to Cuba during the Holocaust. Um, and, um, my abuelo Leon, um, got into running the casinos, you know, somewhere down along the way, like, you know, a survivor in his own right, um, became the, how do you call it? Like he ran the, the casinos and the gambling aspect of the casinos in Havana. Um, my dad remembers him like having a bodyguard. Um, you know, he was like un mafioso in Cuba. 
And what's so bizarrely like connected is that my mom, um, my, her grandfather, my great grandfather, um, Papa, the, the silver fox, he was a, a mobster in Florida. In fact, came out on the, um, I've only heard this story, but was on like the, the Herald in Florida of like the top 10 most wanted mobsters in Florida. Um, and also, again, like a hustler survivor in his own right, like a typical, um, you know, during the Depression was in uh, Pittsburgh uh, working the mines and he hurt himself. And so he started running uh, one of the stores to sell the mining, you know, tools and stuff and to make more money started um, uh, pool, like playing pool in the back and like running bets. And one thing led to another. Um, and so my parents both grew up within sort of that lifestyle, um, which both their families, like, well, my families ended up getting out of, and, you know, my parents became like true children of the sixties in every way possible. But, um, they met like in Atlanta and, 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 and my grand, my great grandfather and abuelo actually like worked together at one point <laughs> in like some sort of, they knew each other. So, yep, that's that, that's that whole thing. Your, your family kind of moves on from this lifestyle <laughs> and your parents have more more regular lives um so you started dancing so young was it always your lifelong dream to become a dancer and and where and where did you study what was the path I really was that that person like as a child it's like I'm gonna be a dancer somewhere in in high school um so I like went into the dance studio and um in in Miami we have a really strong magnet program in the public schools for the arts and also sciences. Um, so I started in the magnet program um, at Norland Middle for, for middle school um, and then wanted to go to the, the conservatory here, which is a high school and college, New World School of the Arts. I went there for um, uh, for high school, studied under dance. And also like somewhere in, in at New World in high school was where I also found choreography. And that's when, like, the idea of me being a professional dancer went from, like, I'm going to have my own company. Like, I'm going to do my, my thing. Um, and um, so I stuck with that, studied, like, more dance and choreography at um, USF in Tampa for my BFA in, um, in dance as well. Um, that was for, like, I felt like I had keys to a castle there, you know, like, man, college was a blessing. We had studios and theaters and everything for free and people. And like, it was awesome. Um, so that was great. And then I, um, again, like only dancer choreographer I ever saw. So I went to LA out of college. I knew a lot of dancers who had gone there. Um, and it was more of like a freelance, you know, idea rather than being in a company, which I didn't want to do. I just sort of wanted to explore stuff while I figured it out. So I actually lived in LA for like four or five years. Um, and then one of the movies that I was doing switched um, production from LA to Florida Rock of Ages. I think at the time Florida was like going to do a tax break for the entertainment industry, but Georgia ended up doing it. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and I was like, I'll never move back to Miami. Once I leave, I'm never going back. And, and I was here and Miami was just like, super fertile with the art scene. And I knew a lot of people who were coming back here, painters, musicians, people I'd gone to high school with. And I felt very, honestly, very free and safe to explore myself as a choreographer. So I stayed and established my company, um, Alma Dance Theater, which is my middle name and my great grandmother's name. And, um, I did that. I did that. And then, and then 2020 happened and my, both my knees went boom. And here we are. Before we get into that, tell us a little bit about the types of jobs you were doing in Los Angeles. You mentioned a movie. So what other kinds of jobs were you getting at that point? I've had two jobs that weren't dancing. One was Starbucks in college. And I quit that once I found go-go dancing at Chick Bar, which was this like lesbian dive bar in St. Pete. And I was there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that was no more Starbucks for me. Um, and I've always like taught dance um, or gig nightlife. And then in LA, um, I tried working at Banana Republic because I was, I was not getting work at the Grove. And I got super overwhelmed. They hired me for like Black Friday and I walked out, like I walked out. 
So that's, and then I, and that was the first time I tried stripping. So I, I did, uh, I went to the body shop and I stripped for a few months. So I started getting gigs. Um, I just didn't know LA enough to, to find work teaching consistently, like threading the needle there. I didn't have that. Um, and same thing back in Miami, like in between, I've always taught, um, uh, strip, um, yeah, like it's it's just always been like freelance is <laughs> it's such an interesting journey because to find something that's sustainable, um, honestly, like nightlife dancing, whether it was go-go dancing, burlesque or stripping was always the easiest because it gives you complete autonomy with your hours. So I was like, oh, I'm doing auditions or a production and these are the days I have off. So those are the days I'm going to go get extra money and I don't have to like rework my own schedule. Yeah, because the actual the production work and stuff is so competitive here in LA, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I and, and dance like everywhere is just um, it's so competitive. You know, I mean everything is, and so um, and there's only so many jobs for dance. It's one of the lower pay rates in entertainment in general. Um, even in the nonprofit side, um, writing grants, it's like trying to vouch for higher uh, pay pay rates for dancers is like, you know, you think you're asking people to pay for grass. It's like ridiculous. So it's it's challenging. Yeah. <laughs> you have to love it. You know, like you got to love dance to dance professionally. It feels like you have to have some kind of like starry eyed dream that you're going to get picked out of a lineup and become a star. Like there, has, I always feel like there has to be some other motivation for staying in that, you know, that kind of production side of the work because it's, it's it's such so taxing. It is, it is, and it's like sometimes it depends too in the environment. Like sometimes in the more like conservatory environment of dance, which is also excruciatingly competitive, but you know, dancers tend to, like, I have a friend who's in his 60s, and he's still dancing for companies and, like, loves it, you know, and nobody knows Clarence. Clarence is not famous. Clarence could care less about being famous. Um, He just, he has to dance, you know, Um, and for me, it's always, it's kind of, yeah, it's like, it's been both. Um, The idea of, like, fame, not so much, but, like, people, it's like people like the work enough that I can pay like for my life with this. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the Alma Dance Theater. So tell us about what inspired you to start it and what was your journey to starting that company? There's this company in New York, Urban Bushwomen. And growing up, they were like the only all like hardcore female dance company. And they like set a piece too when I was in college and I became obsessed. And I was like, I'm going to start another female dance company too. Um, and that was exactly what I wanted to do, which is, um, you know, I wish there was more, you know? Um, but so that was my first motivation. Um, and I did hold back. I was like scared. It's just harder. Like I have a very good friend, a dear friend of mine. Um, and, and, and we were like doing this at the same time. And sometimes you notice that it's like a man, a man can get, um, grants easier or has, doors opened a little easier, you know? Um, and it wasn't happening for me like that, you know? So I was sort of holding back. Um, and then, um, in 2015, both my grandmothers, one had had dementia for 10 years. The other one was starting to have Alzheimer's. They both passed away in in the same year, six months apart. And, um, I don't know, like, again, I think this is how I operate. I needed something to like, uh, contrast that, and so I just did it. Like I established the company. We did our first official show. Um, it was called it's it was called Flowers. Um, and I just started going from there. So I've done like three. Last year was the fourth one. Four main stage shows. I make like these ninety minute, you know, two act dance theater narrative productions that are um, always about some sort of uh, like female story, female perspective. Um, it's always some, there's this like layer of intense sexuality because in dance, historically women were, I mean, used honestly as prostitutes in the beginning of ballet. That's what it was, was, you know, you dance your ballet dance and the only people in the audience were these male patrons. And at the end they would bid on like their favorite dancer. And that's sort of like the history of like this form dance. So I've also 
you know, whether it's with nudity or lingerie, it's like this intense expression of sexuality, but also about reclaiming it and not about um, feeling like it's forced onto them. So, um, you know, it's a lot about, I guess just that, yeah, reclaiming that power of like where the history of dance hasn't always allowed women to do that. And the power of like being vulnerable, um, whatever the, the, the story is. And the last piece that I made was right, became the book now, which I never thought was going to be the book was Rebel and Venus. I was starting this show in 2018 through 19 because it takes me a year to two to finish a piece sometimes, you know, so and and that was the last piece that I that I've worked on was Rebel and Venus. And then, like I said, my knees went a lot happened in 2020. And I started writing. What happened with your knees? It was just all the wear and tear of all the years of dance. Yeah, I, exactly. My meniscus, um, both my meniscuses, both, is that how you say it plurally? But the meniscus in both my knees tore. Uh, the right one first, and then the left one, both while performing, um, requiring surgery. Um, and, you know, like a year plus worth of rehab. It's a pretty long, you know, recovery. Um, and it's sort of like kind of... Um, you know, that, that year also, I think this might be jumping ahead, <laughs> but I'll say it's just like how it happened was I started the shows where we were working on it. We had done like the preview performance, um, in November, December, 2019. And then I was performing for a separate show in December in my, my meniscus tour and I needed the surgery and I was in crutches. I had never had this sort of injury before. Like my body I mean, man, I've done some crazy stuff with my body and it's amazing that I've never, I had never been hurt. Um, so it was really shocking, you know, to realize that my body could break sort of, like it's not invincible. Um, and um, then uh, two weeks I was in crutches um, after my surgery, uh, my, my best friend, she, she passed away. She committed suicide. Um, a few months, at, what is it? Was it like two months after that the pandemic happened? Um, and especially in the height of it, you know, with everything shutting down, it was so unclear of where all of this was really going. <laughs> um, and kind of like, again, I think I just sort of survived things. Um, I, I had to do, I mean, I had to do something or like I was, it was not gonna, like I was gonna be done myself. So I started writing. And, and it was, I didn't know it was going to be Rebel and Venus. I didn't know that it was, it, it felt the same as what the show was starting to be, you know. Um, but by the end, three years later, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's what this is. This is, this is Rebel and Venus. <laughs> yeah. It was, not, it was not planned at all. Tell us about that process. I mean, maybe start by telling us a little bit more about the story of the live production of Rebel and Venus and then how you went about turning that into a book. The project started because I was starting therapy. Um, I was I had come out of an abusive relationship that was triggering while I was in it. These memories of what well, I didn't know then was uh, like this childhood sexual abuse, and so I was starting. I was just starting um, therapy for that. Um, and I tend to the pieces that I make are always you know parallel with what's happening with me. Um, so it's it started there, and then Me Too happened you know, in 2018, around the same time. And that sort of, I think, shifted a lot of girls and women in a way to just everybody started talking like a little bit. And so the rehearsals became conversations. Like if we were rehearsing three, four times a week, three of those rehearsals, we were talking. And, and I started to record a lot of those conversations too. Um, which ended up being used in what the show was intended to be. And so that's how the show started. It was like the first, the first, uh, the first time my brain was opening to exploring, you know, trauma and the conversation that women could have or other trauma survivors could have around this. Um, and that's where the show was, you know, really going. And um, like I said, this thing that happened with my best friend where, when she killed herself and what I was also starting to explore, I was also feeling very suicidal. I was deep in depression. Um, and I started um, more therapy. At that time, I was starting um, EMDR, this treatment for trauma specifically. And um, 
my therapist actually, she, you know, in, um, how do you call it? Suggested to me that after these sessions, I, you know, write things down. Um, and so, you know, to be clear, I've been see, like secretly writing <laughs> my whole life. It was like, you know, I would always enter the writing contest in school and I've, you know, I've written my shows, but it was like secret writer. Um, again, like this confidence sort of, I mean, I feel terrible saying this to myself, but it was like, you're just a dancer. Like you don't write, you know, um, that imposter syndrome thing. So, um, but I, I kept, like, I kept writing through this process and taking in information of what was going on, uh, not just with me, but around me. And, um, I think like I lost so much that year, like my ability to dance, my best friend. I also went through a divorce. Um, I had an abortion. Um, I moved, I had no money. It was so much like no work, you know, and, and, and the pandemic, um, that I also felt very fearless. So like truly the first time I felt like I had nothing to lose. So I was like, you know, Fuck it. Sorry, I don't know if I can say that. It was like, you know, just, just I, um, I, I, I started to dive into it and I shared it with somebody. And this friend encouraged me to take it seriously and sit down with an editor, which is something I didn't like really know about. I didn't, you know, hadn't done that. And I really thank um, my editor in this process because he, he also really helped me, um, like believe in this as more than a vanity project to see it for like what it could be to, it's not like a journal entry. Um, and so, yeah, I, for the three years that I was writing this, I really worked closely with the editor and I don't know if that's how it goes, but I loved editing. Like basically I would write a couple pages and we'd like sit and like read through it out loud and talk about it. Um, he would ask me all the right questions. He didn't make me feel like, you know, this fake writer. <laughs> um, I expressed that I wanted it to sound a certain way, like as far as the tone of the girls and how they speak, um, very sort of like Spanglish, um, a quick read. I wasn't interested in writing this like literature perfect, you know, book. And so I really appreciated him for not pushing that either, for helping it, you know, nurture what it was and help it be better. That's one of my favorite things about the book is that it feels like a conversation. It feels very natural and, you know, it's not the kind of book where you have to pause and look up words because it's just like you're having a conversation. Um, yeah. So, so describe the book for people who haven't read it. The short description, it's a nice, you know, it is, it's a coming of age story. Um, I think in total, it's somebody who's learning to not outrun themselves. And I think it's also, um, more a, a really like honest portrayal of a beautiful strong friendship and that was also like very important to me the the power in our friendships relationships period um and yeah it's it's i think somebody learning how to also just sort of be their own hero and at the same time that doesn't mean that you have to isolate yourself so what does that mean to be your own hero and like find your tribe for of people that help you feel better and vice versa that it can be like a, a reciprocity sort of situation. <laughs> I love the way it's structured that it's a chapter where where the two girls are having a conversation and then it's the reflection on the past that comes from that moment in their conversation. So was that something the editor helped you figure out that structure or was that in your head when you started? the process I had no idea what was going to happen in the beginning the first year was a lot of short stories um I just had a lot of short stories all around the house I didn't know how I wanted to thread them together um and it it was through the editing conversations um that you know AJ was very he was like he encouraged finding a structure um and I remember like I think it had a lot to do with what I was watching on tv um, probably where I was in my own process. Um, and I had this, I mean, I could show it to you, but we're podcasting. Um, but I had this bulletin board and I started to, I'm a very visual person. So I started to make a post-it with each chapter, you know, and put it on the bulletin board. And I saw like, that's where I started to see, and I color coded it to see like what the order would be. And that's what it started to feel like what was missing and where the inspiration really came from. 
Um, also, this dialogue between Maria and Layla was a lot, a lot of, of inspired by the conversations with my editor and I, because we'd read a story, you know, we'd go through one of the stories of the past, so to speak, and then he'd ask questions and we'd talk about it and we'd go into like, you know, off the rail conversations. So um, it's one of those life, uh, what, how is it? Art inspired life, life inspires art. I'm, I know I'm saying it wrong, but it was definitely that. How much of this character of Layla is in you? And and she's a, a gay woman. So why was it important to you to have her be gay? That one for me was really important with this because so much of the book is also about her exploring her sexual trauma. And there's also like in, in this story for Layla, there's never this aha coming out moment. Um, it's, it's like the one piece of her that she doesn't question um, and I, I feel like I just wanted to give that to her and to myself to experience that tra sexual trauma, especially with women, doesn't equal gay, right? And they're two very different experiences. Sometimes they overlap, but often they don't. And so I, I wanted to, to try to, un to unblur those lines with that. And she's also very, you know, her, her queerness is very fluid, I would say. Um, she dates, you know, they, thems, he, she's, um, and the, and it's, I, I, that was not my gay experience. I questioned everything every step of the way. And so it was like, I feel like that was the most like fictitious part of it was like, I'm giving that to her. Like, she's going to own this. Like she likes water and she's gay. That's it. That's it. What it is. But it was, it really came down to that, that like she could be her, her sexuality has nothing to do with her trauma. And that was a really important um, thing for me to distinguish. Very much I wrote what I knew. <laughs> um, it's m most of that book is Layla's story is m a lot of my story. A lot of the sexual trauma, though, like things like that is like taken from other people's experiences. Um, you know, there are some direct parallels, losing her friend to suicide. Um, the abortion, the divorce, um, the, 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 the sexual trauma is almost very similar to mine. But again, I really tied in a lot of the conversations that I was having with my own friends and just paying attention to the world. Um, and what's, what's really the closest is though her battle with depression. And I really wanted to put that out there as, as much as possible. And, um, like, because, you know, I think a lot of times like people who battle with depression don't feel like the hero of the story or like, you know, they have to be something else before they can be the hero. And um, that was kind of, I, I was so tired of putting that pressure on myself. So in that way, I definitely wrote Layla for me. Yeah, because I think it's really powerful and, and honest that she's kind of beginning her exploration of her depression and going to the therapist and seeking help. And it's not like wrapped up in a pretty package, like, and then I went to the therapist and everything was great. I appreciated that about the book. It was just part of the journey that's still ongoing. Yes. And I think a lot of people who, who experience those things will appreciate that when they read it. Um, so was it hard for you? What was, was there any element of the book that was harder for you to dig into and kind of resurface in your own brain from your experiences than maybe some of the other topics that you dealt with? Yes. Um, the, I think mostly the teen years. Um, yeah, because it was so, it was like, that's still the time of my life that's still pretty locked away. Um, my like early childhood, it seems less scarier and my adulthood still like the teens were so scary for me. Um, like sometimes I see a teenager and like, I feel like they look like a seven foot giant walking towards me because I have so much trauma stored in my teen years. Um, so it, it was, it was scary for me to unlock. And I think like just generally um, being vulnerable, like not trying to be perfect. And, and that was hard, like not trying to be the perfect writer, not trying to write the perfect pr protagonist. Um, you know, it's definitely exhausting. I felt like I had to, I could only work on like one, you know, one piece at a time because it, 
it, it does open up so much in you, even if it's not like, even if one story wasn't exactly my story. Um, and then, you know, the other hard part that I, I link, like it was hard to go back and fix every time was, um, there's a couple chapters that I wrote inspired by my experience with Julie, my best friend. And so that, because that's been in such real time, something that I'm still very much healing from, um, you know, some days would just like rip me open, like abandoned. I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> but, um, you know, again, sometimes it was like, then she'd become like the motivating moment. So I'd be like, if Julie were still around and she read this book, when I finished it, I would think she would like, like see herself as a hero and not the burden. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Marissa Alma Nick. To get your copy of her debut novel, visit rebelinvenus.com. Now here's more of our interview with Marissa. As you were starting to write and share these personal stories, did you have reservations about putting it out there? And how did you get past that? <laughs> the fearlessness thing. Like, you know, you th- there's people who know you the best. Um, my family, you know, my parents. My parents knew almost everything about me except that I had been a stripper. My mom would come in college to Chick Bar to see me go-go dance and burlesque there, you know. But, like, the strip club, a, a straight strip club was, like, I didn't want to scare them. I don't know. It was, like, you know. So even that, that was, like, I knew they were going to find out about that part of me. Um, and um, it was my parents more than anybody because also we never had this upfront conversation about um, the, the the trauma I had been through. And they're my parents. So they read that book and they knew exactly when it was me and when it wasn't. And it was terrifying, but I think like I needed, I, I didn't know how else maybe to t- talk to them about it. So I'm just, you know, I was so, they were the first people to read it. And I was like, that was the scariest. Um, and you know, everybody else, it, it's, I don't know. I don't have that fear. It was really my parents because I wanted them to, to understand maybe why we've never talked about it before. Um, I wanted them to know me a little better, you know, but again, it's like my parents. <laughs> so, um, and it's like one of my college professors who I, I reference in this chapter about the tramp stamp and who I came like that I'm so close with. And I still, he sent me an email and he's like, I got your book. I'm in Paris. I can't wait to get home and read it. And my first, I was like, Oh my God, he's going to read this and know that that is him. And, and I was like, I don't know, like, you know, cause, cause it was him and he knows me so well. So he's going to know exactly where I pulled these little facts from. And I had to just trust that, it's like what I want the book to do is to 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 be like a bouncing point for conversations around these things, you know. And so that's what's happening with me. Like, I can't be a hypocrite. So, like, I can't do that. And I can't ask for that and not do it myself. Um, so it has been like that. Um, my best friend, Tommy, um, the one that, like, you know, we've had um, a lot of conversations because he knew a lot about you know, he could, he also could tell it was about me. And so having like some real conversations, we've been best friends since we're 13 and we've never talked about this stuff. So yeah, terrifying, but very much worth it. (laughs) Okay. So how did your teacher react? And more importantly, how did your parents react and did it open up the dialogue with them in the way you had hoped it might? Yeah. Um, my teacher, he hasn't read it yet. He's, I think, still in Paris. So I'm just, you know, holding on, excited to get that second email. Um, my my parents, um, I, I honestly like the the. I'm so grateful because, um, you know, it just opened up a lot. They, we talk to each other differently now. Like my mom calls and asks me like, how are you doing? And then if I say I'm okay, she'll say things like, it's okay if you're not okay. Like, are you sure you're okay? (laughs) Like we didn't talk to each other this way before. Um, And, you know, the stuff that happened from when I was little, you know, to be honest, we haven't spoken about any of the abuse directly. And 
I don't know that my parents and I have to because for me, I feel like I know that they read it. We've looked each other in the eyes. They both really love the book, have told their friends about it. Um, you know, they're so supportive. And so it's like in that way, I, I feel and hear their communication. And I understand, you know, I don't I don't know what it's like to have a child, but to I'm sure like, you know, oh, I'm 38 now and they're 72 to like realize that something happened, you know, 30 something years ago um, brings up. I can imagine so much for them. So I assume they've probably also had like they're very close. Those two, they're like super lovebirds. So I feel like they've had a lot of probably um, I think conversations, you know, as well, probably without me even there. And what do you hope other people not people who don't know you, what do you hope they take away from reading the book? I want them to either see themselves in Layla and feel empowered by her. And if someone who's reading it, <clears throat> like I've had this response, especially from men um, who have read the book, it's really um, opened right their eyes to a lot of things. And it's not, you know, it's not written as this like lecture. So from a lecture, you know, like uh, entitled, I don't know, like, um, superlative place. Like I try, I try to insert some humor. I try to make it an easy read, even if you're like a heterosexual man, you know? Um, and so, you know, that, the, that feedback is exactly what I want. It's that it's the conversations, it's the awareness. If you know somebody also, like I keep saying, if you read the book and you know somebody who's suffering with, you know, um, mental health and depression or has had, um, sexual abuse that you may know of, like, this is a book to pass on. So I, you know, to, to be that, like what it's been for, for me and my own family and friends is to be this, like one of those vehicles to help further these conversations, because without them, we're not going to live in a world without rape culture. You know, every little girl is going to have the same story to tell year after year after generation after generation. Um, and the same thing with mental health, you know, suicide is such an epidemic in our, in, in, especially in America and, um, the way we're talking to each other and holding space for each other and just, um, the patience that we can, you know, have for these things, even for ourselves. So, and they're difficult conversations to have, but, you know, it's how I feel like it's how we're going to survive <laughs> all of this. So that is my biggest hope is, you know, that it starts a conversation or that somebody passes it on to somebody who they think it's going to speak to them. Yeah. In fact, in the back of the book is the, you know, the sexual, not the sexual assault hotline number and the suicide prevention line too. So, um, yeah, that's, I think the biggest purpose with Rebel and Venus. You live in Florida, um, and a lot of the things that you talk about in this book are under attack in Florida. So what is that like for you, and how are you dealing with that? I will talk about it. I don't like having to talk about it, but I will talk about it. Um, it's, it's very bizarre. Um, is the first word I can think of. And so, yeah, we have the book bans. We have now the six-week ban on abortion. Um, we have the don't say gay. We have the trans bill rights. Um, uh, this man is very determined to to create the world that he is, of hate that he's trying to create. And so it's scary. It's, um, I'll be honest with you, like, you know, the, especially the community I'm in, which is a very queer community, a very drag performative community. Um, we have text messages um, because you like we don't go out the same anymore, especially if you're performing, if it's a drag show or um, one of my good friends, his dance company is all like queer performance. You know, um, they're not they're not sure how to bill um, the Broadway show Mrs. Doubtfire, the performing arts center. So it's it's um, it's weird to even think like that. But. And this book, I knew writing this book as as the governor was in, in the position he was in and the things he was doing, I knew that the book I was writing was not going to be his favorite. Um, I think specifically because, yes, it's a very uh, queer uh, story. It's also a very, there's a very specific chapter about abortion um, with a, you know, a very empowered ending, I might say, as well. Um, and 
so it's it's on one hand it's inspiring on the other hand it does it brings a lot of anger um it's such a weird time right now is pride month and half the prides in florida have been canceled um i I even like checked with the bookstore and they're so great books and books because i still i have the book released tomorrow and i was like are you okay if i do read the chapter that goes into an abortion you know, um, because of how, how it is here and which they are, but it is like to even have to consider that it's a new reality that I, I never, ever, ever thought. Um, there's some girls that I teach or I used to teach dance and they're all like juniors and uh, seniors in high school. A couple of them got the book when it was an early release here at the bookstore and they took a picture of it. They sent it to me. They happened to be in the cafeteria of their high school. And then they asked me, they were like, please don't share this though on social media because they didn't want to get their school in trouble um, because of what they're being like told, you know, at the school to try to protect them, to try to protect the teachers. It's so like, I get it's, it's, it's so weird um, and overwhelming. Sometimes I want to run away. And then the other times it's like, but I can't, you know, um, cause who, who's going to make it better for these kids, you know, and they deserve they deserve it. They deserve for it to be better than it was before. They deserve not to live in fear. Um, so yeah, um, that I, I, I could probably, I could talk about that for an hour. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask is, do you ever want to leave? And it sounds like yes, but you got to stay. How, how do you, what do you do? Do you, is there anything you can do? The best that I've, it's like those um, I'm not in politics. I'm not like, this is not, and I'm not, I wouldn't even call myself an activist. I don't organize, you know, um, and, and I'm not always out there protesting. That's not sort of the person that I am. Um, I think like my way of protesting is like writing the book. Um, and so it's a lot, it's a lot about the one-on-one conversations. Um, you know, never say never. I know like, and, and I could move out of here tomorrow. Anything could happen. But what I try to do is I stay most connected to the youth. You know, I pay attention to like, I'm really intentional on social media because I have so many students that I taught like at UM and things like, you know, in the high schools that I know like what they're seeing when they follow me. And so, you know, being out and, and like, you know, like that is possible, keeping myself open for those conversations, sort of what I think is leading by example, um, you know, and even if and when I move out of Florida, you know, and the kids are all right too. Like they're so strong. There was like the kid who did the valedictorian speech and replaced the word gay with poodle. I believe it was curly hair. That's what it was. It was like, I have curly hair, you know, and I'm like, Oh my heart, you know? Um, so, uh, or, you know, help donate, you know, when I can, like, that's always, um, there's so many organizations right now, especially for, um, like the trans community because of what's happened, um, there. So, um, like donating to that or a friend who's looking to undergo, you know, their surgery, like giving to them. Um, it's those things, you know, staying connected to my community, going to a drag show. Like I go to the drag show every Thursday and Sunday. And like, that feels also like doing what I can until we can't. So it's things like that. So what's the state of your ability to dance given your injuries and of the theater company? Funny enough, uh, just three months ago, I had a second knee surgery on my left knee. So, you know, the universe is letting me know that it is time to move on <laughs> from what I used to do physically. It is loud. It is so loud. Um, I, I like my left knee went and I it needed two surgeries two months ago. Um, so I think I've, it's like that fearless, fearlessness thing. It's sort of, like I've also surrendered to a lot of feeling like I have to control less that I can't control. Um, and so I'm just trying to hold on to that. I feel so invested in this book. Um, I feel also like proud of myself for stepping into this because I've always been scared to step into to writing because I had so much identity in dance and being a dancer, you know, um, so it's been it's been a process and and a, a like it's a grieving process because I just you know I don't miss the idea of performing that way but I miss you know being able to go into a studio and throw myself around without worrying about everything <laughs> re-injuring itself you know um but I trust you know like I'm not I'm not actively putting on any shows right now you know um 
the dancers are dancing with other people. They're freelance dancers anyway. Um, and I'm really focused in, in writing. I've, um, I want to, I started writing something else too. I just haven't figured out if it's another book or po possibly a screenplay. I'm letting, again, I'm just letting it happen. Um, and you know, it's like, I, I'm such a dancer. I'm such a choreographer. I've, I have so much confidence there. And I also feel very satisfied by all the things I have accomplished and done with that, that I actually do feel satisfied enough to step away for a while and put all of that energy into, into writing. So that's, that's really where I am. <laughs> now that you've gone through this journey, writing the book, doing some therapy, and looking back, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> oh, man. First, so, so mean in there, you know, like so mean. Um, I was so shitty to myself, like my own worst enemy. And that's like been the biggest thing. It's just the convert, the way I speak to myself. Um, and also that it's going to be okay. You know, I don't even want to say like, don't do anything different, younger Marissa, because then we wouldn't be here. Um, but like, trust yourself, you know, it's going to get pretty rocky and wavy, but like, you're going to be okay. I feel like that's what we all have to like learn how to do too, is like, believe that we have it in us to survive things that we never want to experience, you know? Um, and so, yeah, but definitely the first is just like, be nice, like be nice to yourself. Like you're pretty great. You know, you're not this terrible thing because so much of abuse it resonates with shame it's so hard to get rid of so I realized since I'm like this little girl I've always felt shame and not knowing what it is you know so maybe also start therapy a little sooner but you know it's like the age I was in like it just wasn't available that way either so it is what it is <laughs> yeah so what's your dream for yourself for your future and what's your dream for women? For women, it's it's pretty simple. Like, you know, where I live in Miami, everybody's in, you know, their shorts and bikes and like little tiny bikinis. And I just want one day that a girl at any age, you know, can like go in her short shorts and bikini top and rollerblades at night in her headphones and feel safe. Like that. I want that. Like, I want that so bad. Like I, when we've done that and when like she can do that, like we've gotten, we've gotten somewhere. Um, and I want, like, I just want to keep feeling this purpose. You know, I think I've never felt this kind of purpose before as an artist. And again, like I didn't wish it on me, but it's, it's, it's here and it's been pretty um, motivating. So I hope like whatever I continue to do as an artist, whether it's writing or dancing, um, I hope that it helps achieve that goal that I talked about for women. Whatever I'm doing is serving that purpose. What's your secret to a rewarding life? Man, I sound so cliche, right? <laughs> My dad is going to laugh at this, but gratitude like, is definitely like instead of complaining, taking a moment to just feel gratitude you know, for something, a little thing. One little thing. It has definitely helped me. I know that has been a huge shift. And just saying yes to yourself, like saying yes to yourself is not selfish. Knowing that is very, very, very empowering and can bring so much peace. Do you have a mantra that you live by? I feel like I lean into things like in my seasons, <laughs> you know? Um, but overall, it's, it, it, yeah, it really is that, that gratitude thing. Um, you know, I don't have this one mantra. I mean, though I do on my, I, so I have two, tat I have seven tattoos, but the two that like, I got these two tattoos in college, they're like on my arms and like, they're facing me. One says carpe diem, which is Latin for seize the day. I was taking Latin in college. I thought I was the shit. And there's a chapter three was for the chapter on, um, autonomy. So I think like also like for me, like also like, am I living like for, am I, am I, this sounds so extreme, but am I not being brainwashed? Am I living for myself? Does it feel sincere? Um, and, and, you know, be here, be here now in this moment, you know, take the day. 
The other one is it's aposse arese, which is Latin for from possibility to actuality. So I will say that I look at that a lot when I am not feeling most faithful. <laughs> um, and this one I love because it's like I it's facing me. So maybe that is my mantra. I do have a mantra. It's tattooed on me. What's your definition of success? Failing forward. I have limited my idea to what success is in so many ways, you know, and so that holds back or or keeps you from even recognizing the, you know, the thing has happened, so to speak. So, um, and, and fail. Yeah, I guess that's, that's, I feel, I really feel strongly about that feeling for like being willing to just fail and do it again and again, as long as you're paying attention and going, just keep going. It's like, yeah, I, I, I saw, I can't remember her name. There is um, I think it was in the Philippines. I'm probably messing it up, but she was like running in a race. It was raining and she was in last place, but she did not stop. She was like, she still ran and she got this roaring applause. And I was like, yeah, that. So I feel like that's like, that's success. It's just like, just not giving up. What advice would you give to a young girl or woman who wants to follow her passions? Don't give up. <laughs> but, but also... It, it sounds so simple, but don't give up on yourself because the world, the, the world is still not rooting for women that way and little girls, not yet. So every time it's like you, you say your dream, it's usually shot down in some sort of way, or it could be easier this way, or why don't you? Um, there's so many, why don't you instead? Why don't you instead? And it's just not encouraged yet for a lot of girls and women to get messy and fail their way forward and just figure it out. Define what, what their life is. It doesn't have to mean a child. It doesn't have to mean this type of job. It doesn't have to mean marriage. It doesn't have to mean any of these things. So it's really not giving up on yourself because in my experience, the world is not going to cheer for you right away. <laughs> so like you have to really be, you have to be your own, your own cheerleader, you know? And I think it is harder. It is harder for girls and women to, to forge their own path. I think anytime a woman defines herself for herself, that's seen as a rebellious act in general. You know, so, and the only way I, I know how to be courageous and rebellious is, believe, you know, like believing in me, you know, again, against all odds. <laughs> but, and I think that's what she, you know, the young girl um, that I would be speaking to, like at the end of the day, that's what you need is yourself more than anything. Yeah. And a good friend. Definitely need a good friend. Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Marissa Alma Nick. To get a copy of her debut novel, visit rebelinvenus.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis and in need of immediate help, please contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800 656 4673 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 988. And be sure to visit thepassionistasproject.com to sign up for our mailing list, find all the ways you can follow us on social media, and join our worldwide sisterhood of women working together to level the playing field for us all. We'll be back next week with another passionista who's defining success on her own terms and breaking down the barriers for herself and women everywhere. Until then, stay well and stay passionate.